coming up on The Medicine Podcast. Mavericks have been meddling around in people's business for a long time, and I don't know the last time we were in the right, right? You know, we invaded Iraq, you know, we look at that, you know, we are, yeah, you Russia's invading Ukraine, but we did the same thing in Iraq and we justified it saying, well, weapons of mass destruction. Well, I was there. There were no weapons of mass destruction. And so, so I think, yeah, I think just read everything. And, and, but it's, it's really hard to get off our beliefs. Once you believe, once people believe something, it's extremely hard to change their mind, even in the face of actual facts. Yeah. But I think just always, you know, you have a duty as a citizen, as a person to, you know, look around a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. And not you say a damn opinionated about everything right. you think you know. Because most of the things we just don't know. Welcome back to the Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi, and to my right here I have my favorite person in the world, my partner, my co-pilot, Chase. What is going on, everybody? We are stoked today. We got Ed Heiner on the podcast. We're going to get into some topics that we really haven't talked a whole lot about on the medicine before. So we are welcoming you, my friend, Ed. Welcome to the medicine. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's going to be good. Well, yeah. we'll get started. We have a ton of questions for you today in your very unique line of work and background. Um, but the first question that we ask every guest on the medicine is... What do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to every human? Which is a very tough question, by the way. Anyone that listens to this, when you're listening and go, okay, let me, what would I answer to that? But <laughs> I think probably just a, the gut reaction to me would be, it's a strange, a strange uh, play on words, but the privilege of poverty perspective, mm -hmm. okay? Um, uh, and it kind of, you grow up, and I, I did. I grew up in poverty and grew up in a very tough situation. But to have that perspective on life, I think is good. It, it, I, I wish it on a lot of people, right? I mean, we're born into the birth lottery of the world. You don't know where you're going to be born at, sick, healthy, rich, poor, whatever the case. But that perspective on life has always done me well because I've been very, been able to be very happy where I'm at every time I've been there, so to speak. Mm. You know, some people aren't. And I think that comes with understanding you have enough and, um, but that perspective, privilege of poverty, actually might be one of the titles of my one of my next two books. Mm. Wow. wow, I love that, yeah. and and resonates deeply. Like we went through a divorce in our relationship, and having that context of what it's like to be at rock bottom from a relationship standpoint, now in our second attempt at this relationship, is been the ultimate friend to reconnection and and making sure that we're doing the right things because you have this context. This per, that perspective of poverty in the relationship sense always yeah. being right there and reminding you of what it could be if you don't so choose right. to mm -hmm. uh, be abundant and and make the right choices. So I love that response. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Um, I want to pull on that thread a little bit. Um, I think we can grasp some idea of what you mean by that. But is it the gratitude piece? What exactly about the the poverty perspective is um, helpful to you now in your life. Is it the gratitude piece or or what is it exactly about that? I would say gratitude is a piece of it, right? Understanding you have enough. That's something hard for a lot of people to get in life is to have enough, right? Whatever it is in life. Um, but the, the the gratitude and always being able to balance it off where you're at, it's a, a part in your life, success, failures, whatever it is. You know, I, I live in La Jolla, California. We have a beautiful family. Healthy, um, 
I, I can't think of it. I mean, I'm pretty good to go. You know, no matter where I go from this point on, I'm, I, I've come a long ways. And, and it's always good to reflect back. Anytime that you don't feel that you've come a lot, uh, far enough is where you're at, where you came from. And uh, a lot of people don't have that. You know, it's a Cinderella story. Everybody loves a Cinderella story. And not everyone has, you know, has that perspective to, to really be grateful for that story. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's un let's unpack this a little bit. Um, we we're already teasing your your background a bit, um, and maybe we can we can briefly give a little context to the listener as to what you do in the world today. Um, we'll come back to that, of course, later in the in the conversation. But a little bit about what you do in the world today, and then we can start unpacking a little bit of your story. Well, let's see. I'm a writer. That's one of the things I do. I'm uh, two books, one bestseller. The other one didn't quite make it, but it's doing pretty well. Um, also I started off doing it, had a leadership company, still do, don't do as much of that. I'm, I'm a professional speaker, but one of the coolest things I've done, um, 2019, I started a, with a partner, a leader, uh, uh, an education company for kids in a foster youth juvenile court system. Um, that's our, that's our original target. Uh, we also work with kids, underserved kids, kids of color in the hardest hit neighborhoods. Um, and we've been very successful as far as getting the program dialed in to to meet the needs of the kids so that's one of our passions one of our things we're doing is <clears throat> taking a lot of the leadership mental toughness stuff that i came from from my life and putting it in a classroom for some of these kids that understand or hopefully in 10 20 years from now they understand the privilege of that poverty that they had wow yeah. do you in your in your work in the in the leadership um program and education system do you speak directly to that poverty perspective and and how it could potentially benefit them later in life uh 100 that's it it's up front um when we're teaching my partner and i are both you know we're not young kids anymore but we're, we're both we owgs right we call these kids and these kids they're like what does that mean it's like we're old white guys of course they love that <laughs> and and my partner came up i was in the blue ridge mountains of virginia in a trailer my parents are gone before i was 12 I lived with a grandmother that was seventh grade educated, first person, in, you know, high school, graduate, college, all those things. My partner's same story, except he was in the in the projects in New York. Wow. And uh, yeah, he ended up going to Wall Street by the time he's 25 years old. He, he got a full, full ride to Syracuse and broke pro poverty, went to Wall Street, made enough money at 25. So the last 35 years, he's been entrepreneuring and, and helping kids and different homeless kids and different uh, uh, ventures for for schools. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Incredible. So, so yeah, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Yeah. would love to hear about your upbringing, um, this, this, this poverty that you've so described. Um, and then ultimately what led you into the military? Yeah. Well, um, I was Blue Ridge Mountains, Virginia, which is the middle of nowhere. Um, I grew up, my parents are gone when I was 12. Uh, basically my dad was gone most of my life. Um, I grew up with my mother, some, she had a, a nervous breakdown left. She's gone on her own for a long time. For, and I live with my grandmother, older lady. She's actually born in 1915. Um, she passed away since. But yeah, I kind of grew up hard, tough. My brother and I at the time were both pretty gifted athletes. I'm getting, getting a scholarship, baseball, Division One scholarship, which really kind of helped save my life. I became good at sports. and That was something I grabbed onto. Um, and it perpetuated me through school, through undergrad and grad school. So yeah, it was a tough life, but it was, you know, very beneficial because I learned to be a chameleon. I learned to be able to fit into any environment I could get into. And that paid off later in life and my military career because most of the people in my profession in the military came from a messed up background mm -hmm. or, or a difficult, challenging background, if you will. So, 
So, so take me through a little bit your, you know, your successful athlete. What was your idea around like, like, was there, was there a cultural suggestion that you should go to the military after school? Um, what led you into the military? And then specifically, maybe take us through what your military time looked like. Well, I know from where I was from, I was, I was born in 68, right? So I was born in, and, and grew up after the Vietnam War, not a very popular thing, small town I was from, a lot of people went and were messed up when they came home. So I was, I would say my, my dad was a hippie, but I would say almost a hippie. He was mm -hmm. anti-war, all that kind of stuff. So never in my life did I think military would be a part of my life. But <clears throat> my junior year in college, I didn't get drafted. I thought I was by professional baseball. So um, I knew kind of the writing was on the wall for that. So my senior year, I was in Virginia Beach. Is, I think it's pretty cool stories. It's kind of one of those stories you, you're prepared for, and it happens. I never thought about the military. I got recruited by the Virginia Military Institute for football. I didn't want to play football, and I sure as hell didn't want to be in the military at the time. But I was in Virginia Beach with a friend of mine, roommate and teammate, and we were at his dad's. Uh, his dad was retired, and he lived at this small storage unit running it, just kind of a job to do. And we'd been out all night partying. We were looking at the floor, woke up at like six in the morning. His dad drug us up. And there was a lady there with like three small children. And her husband was on a ship overseas. And this is like 1990. Her husband's on a ship. She had gotten evicted from her, her, her place where she lived. And she basically had to be out in 24 hours. I, I forget the circumstances. So we were like, okay, we're not, we're not doing anything. We'll help. So we ended up getting a truck, boxes, and started going to her house. She hadn't even packed up. So we started packing her house. And our first run to that storage unit, we get there and um, one of the guys that was putting something in the storage unit was like a few doors down from me, big kind of buffed up dude. And I was, just started talking to him. I said, told him the story and he's was like, you know, I'm in the Navy. I, I got time off, man. I'll help you guys. He ended up being a SEAL. We spent about 24 hours all night packing and taking her stuff to the storage unit. And that was it. I ended up going from Virginia Beach, hitchhiked back to Richmond, Virginia, where I went to school, because that's how my transportation was, you know, hitchhiking. Wow. And uh, I started the process to sign up. That was it. That was my, uh, the thought process was probably that short. Wow. wow. It, once he told me what he did, I said, that's what I'm going to do. Mm. And I was already looking at being a stockbroker, and I'm sure that doesn't fit me. <laughs> <laughs> now, so yeah, I just, I just happened to be in the right spot. And found the right person and I was open to it and, you know, like anything in life. And that's where it happened. Oh, I love that. So did, right, he, yeah. um, did he try to, in your conversation at all, did he try to like, oh, you should join the, the Navy too? Or was it just in observation of him? Well, it, it was kind of, a, he was very neutral. Come to find out, you know, he was very, he was very honest to me. Like a lot of times I have it. Well, we have a, a part of an organization that we probably bust one or two people a day for being phony seals around the country. It's a epidemic. Mm. What? Sometimes we bust people. I've busted people national and TV. I busted uh, famous people. I mean, a lot of people. This is people claiming to be Navy seals. Stolen valor. Yeah, we do it every single day. Oh sometimes four or five times a day. And what's their um, what's their angle? Well, they're they're usually trying to hustle someone. Um, mm. You know, a lot of people want to be. You know, we say everybody wants to be a frogman on a sunny day, right? But when it's cold, wet, and miserable, no one wants yeah. to do it or it's dangerous. So a lot of people want to have that valor, but they didn't want to put their name on that empty check. So, yeah. so it's, it, it's, it's very common to do it every day. 
Yeah. Um, oh, I believe it. I mean, yeah. we're in we're in Coronado, and this is obviously kind yeah. of like a, a haven for seals. And I could easily see people, you know, whether it's looking for the military discount or just looking yeah. for some level yeah. of, uh, you know, celebrity because, <laughs> because it is it is something to be very very proud of. Um, well, it's stolen. It's it's Bauer. You know, it, yeah. it, it used to be in two thousand until I think it was two thousand and eight. It got knocked. It was a mis- It was a felony. But now, unless you, if you make money doing it, uh, then it is a felony. Still, wow. But, wow. Yeah. So so let's let's dive into your uh, time as a SEAL a little bit, and and then let us know how long you were you were in service with the yeah. Navy. Maybe some of the the tours uh, that you were on. And then I'm, I'm so fascinated as to that point of deciding it was time to move on and what that was like for you after having what seems like a very robust experience with the SEALs. Yeah, well, I spent just over 20 years as a SEAL. I uh, I guess the claim to fame is I never really did a shore duty, so to speak. And that's in Navy terms for not having to deploy and not being able to deploy whenever we look at it. So I did nine tours. I, did, I was in you know three different wars multiple times. Uh I think it was, I mean, I loved it. It was a lot of great times and a lot of hard times. Um, I feel like I did a lot of, a lot of good in the world, you know, in some sense. And, but when it was time to move on, I knew it. I was just exhausted. I was heading back. If I wouldn't have retired at the time I was, that I retired, I'd, I'd headed back to Afghanistan for about a year. And at the time in 2010, I, I retired in 2012. My last tour to, to, was in Afghanistan. And uh, at that point, all of us, the people actually on the ground knew it was a, a losing cause mm. or as what our mission creep had turned, turned into. We went from hunting just Al Qaeda hunting then to transitioning into this, uh, building nations, nation building thing. Yeah. And that was, we, everyone on the ground knew it, but mm. it seemed that no one above us knew it. Mm. When we watched the collapse of Afghanistan, I knew I was right for that one. I was like, wow. Yeah. Because I think it was that to me, everybody calls, I think that was the biggest lie that we had seen in a long time because we would send reports from the ground. And I was, when, when I was the last time I was in Afghanistan, I was working with the Afghan commandos, their special forces. We'd send up reports. And by the time it made it up to the uh, Pentagon and White House, everything was good to go. Like we were like, these are dysfunctional people. They have no idea what they're doing. Uh, without us, they will not continue the fight. And by the time it made it up, it was, hey, they're good to go. They're ready to fight and take over the nation. So, yeah, disappointing. But uh, I'm glad I didn't go back. You know, I was, I was done. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Did that change your view of the military or the Navy at all? No, it didn't change the view of the military and the Navy. It changed the view of the government for me. Mm. I lost a lot of faith and a lot of hope, like a lot of us did. In 2000 or, you know, 21, when we pulled out and allowed it to collapse, then yeah, but what, right? Yeah. And for what you know, for one short momentary decision, twenty years of of work, so to speak, and um, yeah, disappointing. But it put a good perspective on me as far as how our government functions and what we're going to do in the future and all our future conflicts. Yeah, yeah, no, I I can imagine that's a, a perspective of and or reminder that authority doesn't always make the best decisions uh just because they are granted this uh status of being an authority figure and that individuals oftentimes who are on the ground quite literally in your case 
or if it's, you know, let's just say it's healthcare or something along those lines, people who are working with actual patients or the people are going to have a better pulse on some of the higher level decisions than, you know, sitting around a boardroom table. Yeah. I think a lot of times, I mean, obviously sometimes they're seeing things that we don't see, but that was probably not the case because all the so-called experts in foreign policy, well, I, I don't know if we do have any experts, to be honest with you. I mean, you can watch them all day, but they don't know any, they can guess just as much as any of us can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So take us through your integration back into civilian life. Um, I, I would imagine after, you know, decades in the military, um, it probably felt new, novel, interesting. I know it's definitely challenging yeah. for some. Um, what was coming up for you and then what ultimately led to you deciding the path that you've gone down now through leadership, speaking, working with youth? Well, I think the first few years, it was just a sigh of relief. Like most people, you want your freedom back because you don't realize in your when you're in the military, most people never have been, don't really understand the restrictions that the Uniform Code of Military Justice puts on you, right? You don't have freedom of speech completely. You know, you don't have freedom to do what you wish. You you physically are owned by the government, right? Right. You know, I've been deployed to a combat zone with ten hours notice before, so you know that's just part of the life, and you either accept it or you don't. So when you get out, there's a sense of freedom, and you understand um, what that feels like. And but it took me probably about I'd say five years, maybe, to really it dawned on me. Then mm. then I you know I realized how much. I'd lost, you know, identity, your identity's lost, your, your teamwork, even though you don't like the people necessarily you're with, you know, you still have a deep of, I would call it a, a brotherhood love in some sense. You both, all of you share the same kind of consequences. You all share the same adversity mm-hmm. and it's a shared mindset in some sense because you're fairly dialed into one another. So then that started realizing that the world is a more of a lonely place when yeah. you don't have all that, and, you know, in a purpose. And, and it, you always have something to do, always have a purpose. So to, I think about 2000 and probably 15, 16 is probably my worst years. Uh, it kind of dawned on me what happened. And uh, yeah, I probably had the, the worst couple of years of my life. Those years, it kind of all exploded. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, I'd already written one book. And the first book, even when it came out, I, I think that was probably my, the lowest point in my life. Mm. possibly because and most people are like oh my god it's so exciting you're doing book stuff a tour and i'm like not really it, once it was over um yeah i just felt lost you know mm. and and uh yeah it was a tough tough time for me um even the editor said that's kind of strange she's like most people are excited when it comes I'm not me i wasn't but i think it just symbolized what was happening in my life everything is changing um like i said identity was i, I had identity problems uh everything yeah i mean I was a college athlete and I played uh, basketball competitively for shit, 20, 15, 20 years. And I didn't realize, it took years after yeah. being out of it to realize how much of my purpose, which is so critical for masculinity and, and men, yeah. my purpose and my um, identity was attached to this sport. And everything, like you said, you know, on, on a different scale, obviously, but, but the kind of the sports arena will give you this camaraderie, yeah. this this forced connection. You have parameters of the game that require you to work with other human beings in a synchronized way, where you have to abandon, uh, you know, selfish actions and work cohesively mm-hmm. for the greater good of a team. And sure. these types of 
human behaviors when they're they're very challenging but then broken through are extremely rewarding they're extremely satiating regardless of the conditions and the circumstances i had some asshole coaches don't get me wrong like oh, yeah, yeah, we all have like <laughs> some of these guys have literally been like kicked out of you know ncaa for for various you know abuse and things of this nature but all that being said, in this container, you find so much of yourself, you pick up on human tendencies and patterns that are satiating and fulfilling. And when you leave that arena where the conditions are such that you have to be able to get through them, and you're left in kind of this dull, dusty, huh. mainstream existence of life, it especially as a man that thrives off of purpose and and drive, it is... It is huh. Very yeah. challenging to figure out where the mm -hmm. hell you belong. And I would imagine it is a hundred times that, maybe not, or maybe even more coming out of the military, specifically mm -hmm. the SEALs. Because it's, tra yeah. it's tra trauma trauma bonding, right? Like, yeah, go through really intense. Did you know that that's what you were experiencing at, the, at this time when you were kind of in this low point? Did you, were you consciously aware of like, oh, this is probably what's happening to me? Uh, yes, but I fought it. That was, yeah. I, I saw a lot of things. I was like, well, this is kind of bullshit. You know, people talk about post-traumatic stress and blah, I'm like, whatever. You know, I, that was my opinion to it. I thought, well, you know, you just, like everything in my life, I just kind of sucked it up. Right? And, then, and then I realized when I, when it, I think in 2016, when it really was kind of hit me was I was at nights, I would, he I would hear voices at night. Mm. Wow. Movement in my bedroom. I was freaking out. I'd walk clear the house. And my wife's like, no, you're, there's nothing there. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of strange, you know. Yeah. So my mind was working, and I started just accept it. You know, I knew it was coming. I was like, wow, this is it. This is how it works. And uh, yeah, it was a very tough time. Mm. What were some of the, you know, obviously for a while it sounds like you tried to just bury it and compartmentalize it, and you know, put it off to the side. But when you started to integrate some of these things that were showing up for you, what did that look like? Were you going to therapy? Were you looking at resources for veterans? Um, what, what, what were some of the modalities that you were interested in? Well, uh, at the time, at the time, now since then I've done some different things, but at the time, you know, I was fitness diet, you know, just trying to take care of myself, mental training. And I, I, you know, I know it sounds odd, but meditation, I was doing a lot of different things to just take care of my body. If I woke up at four o'clock or four 30 in the morning, freaking out, I would just throw my running shoes on and get out until mm -hmm. running until yeah. it was over, you know, yeah. Physical fitness, you know, if you run 10 miles, it's hard to be yeah. anxious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If my yeah. totally exhausted. Yeah. So your demons will be exhausted following you, so to speak. Yeah. And I did that for the longest time. But yeah, it was always, it, it was a time that was just a sense of emptiness and uh, just nothing. Was, mm -hmm. So what? To answer that question, now what was one of my biggest questions, still is, you know, it's still, how do you feel that now what time in your life? What do I do now? Now what? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Hey friends, did you know that the amount of muscle you have on your body is directly related to overall health and longevity as you age? Generally, people who have a healthy amount of muscle have lower rates of chronic illness like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and are better equipped to deal with acute illness like the flu. This is why Chase and I support the concept of muscle-centric medicine. To build healthy muscle, we need quality sources of protein. In addition to our quality meat, Chase and I also use protein powder to ensure we are getting enough protein each day. 
Our two favorite protein powders are the plant-based Organifi protein, which is organic, non-GMO, and glyphosate residue-free, and the animal-based whey protein by Keon, which is non-GMO and comes directly from grass-fed, pasture-raised cows with no antibiotics and virtually lactose-free. We love and use both daily in smoothies, stirred into yogurt, protein pancakes, and even baked goods. Getting adequate amounts of protein helps us feel satiated, build healthy muscle, recover faster, and maintain optimal body composition year-round. To try Organifi's plant-based protein, go to Organifi.com and use the code MIMIFIT, M-I-M-I-F-I-T, for a hefty 20% off. And for Keon Whey Protein, go to GetKeon.com and use the code MEDICINE, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for 10% off. Or just check the show notes below for the direct link. Cheers to muscle-centric medicine. So how did your, how did you get the idea or you and your partner, how did you go about like deciding that your mission or your purpose now would be, Hey, I want to invest in youth. Um, it really comes down to my own life story, but also, you know, warfare and I don't really get into a bunch of it, but warfare, one of the things that, uh, uh, you, you just, I didn't, no, I'm not saying everyone, but didn't really quite prepare myself for was what happens to kids in war. You know, you can't segregate the population and just go after Al-Qaeda and those people that are integrated with society. And a lot of times you see, you know, kids and you know, women, kids uh, destroyed, killed, you know, damaged very badly. And uh, that's hard. Mm -hmm. That's hard to see it. Even though you didn't intentionally do anything, um, you still did it. And it still happened and you still witnessed it. And uh, yeah. But I, I can honestly say, thank God, I can say, because when I was in charge of troops overseas, is that one of the basic things I said is, you know, rules of engagement are one thing. You know, special forces, you have very lenient rules of engagement. But it's really just never intentionally hurt someone unless you have to. That's it. You know, and only sometimes the person doing it will know. And, you know, just keep your soul clean, so to speak. And uh, so I was lucky for that. I never really, I never went down that deep, deep side of the of the what could possibly happen i think mm. yeah yeah so, so you have this impetus of seeing children hurt killed and how did that translate to your civilian life and like okay i'm going to start something i'm going to create something from nothing um i, I just felt the drawing to it it's uh, you know almost like i got i would say <laughs> The term would be resume for my soul, right? I'm like, I probably have some catching up to do, so to speak. Mm. And then what, you know, what, what can I bring of value? A lot of people are teaching leaders, you know, people that are already making a lot of money, successful, happy people, more money. I get it, have at it. But I thought this would be something that would probably help me kind of fulfill myself. You know, mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. selfish, but to also pass back to these, these kids that have been through these kids I work with. I mean, some of these kids have some of the trauma they've had is just really hard to imagine it. You know, homeless at age five, raped, drugs. Wow. Had people had just god-awful situations. And as they grow up in this foster system, you know, when they, return, when they turn 18, no one cares, right? So, hey, you're an adult, you know, and now you're a convict and now you're recidivism, 80%. Boom, it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's just perpetual cycle. And I think, you know, that's something I can help change. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I have a perspective on it. For instance, I kind of came from a tough background, and uh, I think some of the things that I know and have learned that can pass on to these kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've definitely got your pulse on where kind of the youth are sitting at in 2023. And what are some of the areas that you're seeing as consistent um, in need of attention? Like you, you're working with these kids probably on an intimate level. Are you seeing consistent patterns and, and you know, deficiencies in culture and society um, that need addressing or fixing? What are you able to highlight in, in what you've been working with? Well, um, I know there's a lot of talk about those BLM movements, there's uh, inequalities and stuff, but it, it, I see it. You know, um, I think that's one of the things that changed my mind is most of the kids I work with are kids of color, probably 90, 95%, I would say. Um, but and it's not really necessary. It has to be a color thing, a skin color thing, but it's it's a poverty thing. Yeah. And poverty is an epidemic. And kids and people that grow up in poverty, you know, their odds of pushing past that and going higher is very low. I mean, they, they still have an opportunity in the United States, but the odds are against them more so than if you grow up in a you know, great, safe environment. And I see that with these kids. And I see that, I mean, some of these kids, by the time they graduate high school that have been in a homeless system and uh, foster system, they have, and I had one expert told me once, it was something like 2 million words less they've heard from adults. Wow. Mm. So adults, you know, constantly talk to kids and, and educate them. It just, it's a constant dialogue. And a lot of these kids don't get that. They don't get the adult explaining things. They just shut up, get in the corner. That's it. That's your conversation. So their life has been affected and, and will be affected for longer periods of time. And I, that's, that's where we need to intervene. You know, I think it's a war on poverty, not necessarily a war, a, 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 a racial or skin color war. So, yeah, but, I, but, it, but it does correlate to, to skin color. And I've yeah. seen, well, that educated me a little bit more. I'm like, because hey, I live in San Diego. I mean, I, and I don't really, we don't, I don't really run across open racism, right? I mean, you go back down South, maybe a different story, but most people I know, there's no, they just, it's not a, a, a topic. Um, but when you see it, when I see it firsthand, then that's, that's a little different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are the family dynamics of these kids typically look like? You, you mentioned foster care for many, is it for most yeah. or are most of the family units broken? Well, I've worked with probably, it's, I would guess maybe 50 schools, 40 schools, but our, I did. I started off at, at what's a place called San Pasquale Academy. It's in Escondido, about forty miles uh, east of uh, northeast of Sandy or Boya, uh, where I live. It's a foster youth academy, so it's a high school. They have dormitories. All the kids live on campus, and they all go to high school there. So they have like ten kids per dormitory with a foster parent in in house. Uh, so all those kids, you know, have had very difficult situations where there's no parent involved, or the parent has been. You know, take the kids have been taken away by the custody of the courts from their parents. Their parents can't raise them. You know, I've seen multi- kids with three or four siblings been pulled apart. One kid's at the foster youth academy. The other kid's with a family that adopted them. I mean, it's all kinds of awful, awful dynamics. Mm. But the San Pasquale Academy is probably one of the coolest, one, most wonderful places there is. Mm. I have a great relationship with those folks. Uh, we teach there several times a year. We try to get permanently put into the school to kind of keep a guts sealpreneur program. That's the name mm-hmm. of the program, sealpreneurship okay. and uh, guts and kind of keep it a permanent fixture in the, in the school. So fill us in on what your, you know, intervention in these kids' lives look like. Like what, what is the, the seal, uh, seal entrepreneurship, um, program and, and the guts program really teaching kids? 
Well, in one word or one expression would be a PhD in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's actually our website, myphd.me, um, for that, for that, for the education company. But it's really to teach them how to self-leadership. And it starts at the very basic of accountability, what it means, how you get it, how do you understand accountability, what does it mean to you, um, discipline, which people talk a lot about discipline, but how do I get some of that? That's all the kids, right? How do I, okay, how, if I can't get my ass on the computer, start my homework, how do I actually do that? So we cover the very basics of that language discipline, language control, uh, visualization. We understand the body. We teach them how the body works, how neurotransmitters work, how you create a habit that we basically build on. We call it 23 evolutions. Is it, I don't know. In the SEAL teams, we use the word evolution for everything we do in jo- jumping, diving, shooting, whatever it is. We call it evolution to constantly retrain the brain to you're evolving. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, when you went through training, but well, as a SEAL, like, well, I'm always training as a CEO, right? There's no past tense. It's an active verb. It's always, always developing, always kind of growing. And that's the mindset we teach with the kids is that you you don't have to be, you know, at the Z already. You start at A and this will build on this. Mm-hmm. And well, once you get your PhD in me, as we say, then you can do anything. That mm-hmm. scaffolding that you get in your mindset will be able to take you anywhere. Oh, that's awesome. This is, you know, it's it's obviously great for these kids. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing with them. But these are also concepts that can help anyone, anyone, you know, us even, you know, people listening to the podcast, even if you're not a foster kid in poverty yeah. or in a, some sort of system, like these are just life skills in really, you know, something that we take, that we talk about a lot on the show is, is ownership. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was your fault, but these are the circumstances that we're working with here. And so there is some like kind of acceptance and then, okay, I'm going to own my situation. I'm going to own, you know, the the tools that I'm putting in my toolbox. I'm going to own my experience. And what you're, what you're saying, this is kind of what I'm, I'm hearing you say is like, you're helping these kids um, kind of take ownership for what they're currently dealing with and then giving them tools in their toolbox to move through it, grow through it so that it can become something they look back on and are ultimately yeah. grateful for because it propelled them in a way that other kids, you know, don't have the opportunity for. Yeah. Well, I do teach adults, uh, some. The okay. book, book is really the guts book, Greatness Under Tremendous Stress, was really written for adults, but we use it with kids. But no, that the accountability is mo- probably the most important thing because that's extreme ownership of the outcome, right? And we tell these kids, yeah, because a lot of the people in the system that they work with, the counselors and government, it's easy to get a victim mindset. And yeah, you've been victimized, but you're not a victim. You know, we, we talk about like if you're 15 years old, the next 70 years probably of your life is yours. Now, the outcome will happen to you either way, right? And we teach, we teach this to BUDS students. And when I tell how do you teach a SEAL, a BUDS student, basic underwater demolition SEAL, that's our basic six-month course. How do we teach them accountability? Well, it's fairly simple. And anybody listening can do this in their own life. When we give, say we give a student, the students uh, too many tasks. We give them 30 minutes to do a bunch of tasks. It's going to take an hour. But we give them 30 minutes. And when they come up to us and we ask them, did you get it done? There's three responses. Yes, no. And one is, I fucked up. That's it. And it seems a little cruel at first, right? Because, what? well, you had too much, too little time to do too much. 
But what we're trying to do is we're trying to separate them from the excuses in their life, in their mind. So their default doesn't go right to, well, I didn't have enough time, right? They don't have those excuse reactions. So over time, they separate from that excuse, which changed their beliefs. And it also makes them very innovative and creative. And it teaches them prioritization, right? You know, do you prioritize a 20-minute meal or a five-minute meal to get the job done? And those are skills that these kids have to learn as well. So once you break that cycle of excusing yourself, you're not a victim anymore. You start to go forward instead of looking back for the solution. Mm, so yeah. it's just, it really just changes their beliefs. And once you change your beliefs, like if you look at a, a SEAL, or not a SEAL, but a person that graduates, uh, well, actually it'd be a SEAL, when they graduate and get their, what's called a trider, right? They're big, like my big uh, wooden thing on the back there. That's a symbol of a SEAL, their trider pin. Once they get that trider pin, and I used to love to do this when I was a training officer, is go to the graduations and watch. And just set them, watch the parents and the family. They all come and they see their student for the first time. And now they're, you know, just, they, they look different. But it's always, the mothers usually pinning out. They're like, little Johnny's not the same. Mm -hmm. They don't, they can look at him and go, wow. They don't know why. He carries himself different. He acts different. He speaks different. They can hear it in him. And not that he's arrogant or anything like that. There's just something that is you know, transformed in him, in that person, and they can see it and hear it. Mm. It's pretty cool. It's a little bit sad for the mom and the dad a little bit because uh, he's not little Johnny anymore. He's done. Yeah, he's I mean. Person, and he has these skills in his life. That, that's a critical point in uh, a man especially, but just the, the maturation process from adult yeah. or from child to adult. And I don't think many have actually gone through that process. Yeah, it's like Even, a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage. And, yeah, and I love the it. break from the mother like is so critical for men to look at your mother in the eye and see in her that she now sees you no longer as the boy, but as yeah. a And it's really, really important and powerful and it's heartbreaking for uh, the mother and it can be for the boy too who wants his mom to take care of him and so right. i think it's just a critical critical step and it's i think one of the things that um the military is one of the last uh, i would i would uh, assume or maybe not the last but one of the few who still have this uh, really beautiful process of maturation and i'm curious as you work with youth outside of the military i'm i'm sure your training was quite intense and i'm sure that when you were uh, facilitating training for the military and for SEALs specifically, that it was quite intense. And and I think that's the assumption that most have. How much of that is now translated into your work with youth? Is this like tough, tough love, like yelling and screaming? And no. how does it, how does it look? But it, none of that. No, I, I, we don't have to resort to that. Thank goodness. <laughs> no, uh, even BUDS SEAL training in the first six months, it's, it, People, when they think of it, they most probably most likely think of like Marine boot camp. Yeah. It's, yeah. And there are some yelling and screaming just to confuse you, but it's such a long process that a lot of it is just speaking like this mm. to the students. You know, hey, you, okay, you know, we all know we live in San Diego. The water right now is probably what, 58, 59 degrees? Yep. We're like, okay, go ahead and go hit the surf, get wet, get sandy, come on back. And then, you know, there's, these kids are wet all day, all day and night. So that's a miserable thing. Yeah. But we, it's not yelling and screaming all the time. Mm. It's just talking them through it, you know, because you, we don't have to do that. Mm. Boot camps, yeah, they do that. But no, with these kids, the same way. Matter of fact, uh, um, we treat them as exact equals. Um, at first, they're probably a little bit too much, dis uh, too disrespectful. But over time, we learn trust because trust is earned over time. And we let the kids, we start off, we treat them the same as we treat ourselves. We let them set the ground rules, which is pretty cool because 
the ground rules of the class takes maybe an hour, usually come out exactly the same as we, if we had written it, but they're empowered because they wrote them mm. and they check each other on it. So that process, just a trust building process. And over time, they start to trust us and start to realize we, we probably know a little bit well what we're talking about. Mm. What is the general response? There's probably some outliers that push back for a while or whatever they, they have uh, maybe kind of fixed in their mind um, or they don't want to detach from what is familiar, even though it's very uncomfortable. Uh, I'm sure there are those outliers, but generally, like, what is the response like from kids when they meet you and start learning from you guys? At first, now that's it, it varies because my course at San Pasquale Academy, my, Charles and I, are, my partner's course, and I, um, our course is actually accredited, which is pretty pretty cool and not easy to do with the school system to get high school credits for it. So they take it as elective. Some of them take it because they don't want to take something else, but uh, most of them take it because they want to. And that's a great thing knowing coming in. Because our elective course is actually the number one course at the, at the academy. Mm. We actually have to disenroll some people because the state has limitations on how many people can be in the, in the class. Um, but hopefully they want to come in. That's the first part, right? So they want something. They know there's something that we have that they probably want some of it. Um, but we've had a lot of pushback from kids. Some kids just, just uh, they think it's bullshit. They've been told by a lot of adults with a lot of titles that they can help them and they can do all, all these miracles and all this stuff and they've been let down over and over. We make them no promises. Everything's internal to them. Take what you can use and discard the rest, right? We're very open about that. And we tell them, I think we relate to them with our stories, you know, and um, relate to them. We show them some steel stuff, but not a tremendous amount because a lot of the kids have no idea. Maybe the boys know from playing video games, but a lot of the girls don't know what a seal is. They don't, they don't care. Um, but, but, but the response is pretty good, I think. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Hope. Okay. Yeah, no, I would assume yeah, but, that, I mean, I, I would just, I would guess that most kids are, um, you know, responding well to it. Um, once they, you know, see that you're a trustworthy person. And, um, I love that you take that approach that trust needs to be earned and, and kind of understanding, you know, having been through similar situations in your own childhood that, you know, just because like Chase said, just because someone is an authority doesn't mean they have the right answer or it doesn't mean that they're going to no. follow through. And um, I love that you you are able to provide that from for them. Um, I'm curious, working with these kids, what have they taught you? Good Lord. Um, that I'm on the right path. Mm. Um, that um, what I'm doing, I need to scale it up, continuously scale this up. Because it might be... Um, Probably maybe one of the most important courses some of these kids would take. They don't have the parenting. They don't have the safe environment. They don't have a lot of those things. So to be able to actually control their own mind and change their own perspective, get their own beliefs, and you know have that PhD in me, then that will probably be one of the most critical skills they'll ever need. And I think I'm on the right path. I've uh, my partner and I have. You know, it's obviously not easy. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed sometimes to say. It. Sometimes it sucks. It really does. It's hard. It really, you know, to have a kid that's been through trauma and been through hardness in their life and are disrespectful and yeah. you name it, it's it's hard. But when you see them in the end, when they come out of it and they, you know, they engaged kids that had their hoodies on, not even looking up, now they're engaged in front of the room speaking, mm -hmm. 
We teach them about fear and what it happens to the body and all those things. We actually use public speaking for that. But I think just knowing that um, this is the right course, and now I've started to team up with some, well, the initial conversations from some very large organizations that have seen what we're doing and have reached out. And they're like, hey, maybe you are onto something good. Like, I think we are. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to team up. Actually, there's a gentleman by the name. I hope his, his staff is listening. Is Ken Blanchard? If you know, he's probably one of the biggest leadership companies. He's mm-hmm. in San Diego. Okay. I think an eighty million dollar company a year. Uh, he's phenomenal man. He's written like sixty books. Well, his foundation and I just started having a conversation, having lunch, and kind of feeling out how we can work together because they have assets, resources that I just don't have, and right. they know how to create curriculum and do things. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm just making up, right? <laughs> just there's, there's a, up. Yeah, there's a there's a system to to all of this, and so I'm yeah. really glad they're teaming up with you because you have yeah. what can't be taught, which is the experience and the mm-hmm. on the ground research, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so on that thread of leadership, um, I know you've spent a lot of time probably contemplating, but then educating on leadership. What are some of the core tenets of leadership from your perspective, and what are we missing in the world today? I can't say that I've I can just off the top of my head, list off a bunch of amazing leaders in my life. Well, I think from the perspective of steward, you know, a lot of people talk about servant leadership, doesn't quite do it for me, but I always considered myself a steward of the people that I worked with, right? And it's drilled into you from day one as an officer in the SEAL teams, you know, what's the, one of the first things when you start training, some of the military, right? The officers are elitist and the enlisted guys are kind of, serving them in the mil- and the SEAL teams is exactly the opposite. And when you first get a training, when there when you go to eat, the officers get in the back of the line. And if the food runs out or the time runs out, they don't eat. Mm. It's a constant reminder that you are serving, you are steward of these of the mission. I call it the mom model. It's very simple to people to understand is mission, others me. So when you make decisions, you make decisions off the mission, off of other people, and then yourself lot. And if you do that, you're probably going to be right. And that kind of breeds humility into you when you realize that you probably don't know as much as you think, which we could probably use in today's world. But being a steward, being a protector, being uh, you know a guardian, if you will. And that's that's how I think I permanently changed the way I see myself in leadership. And I think most good leaders do. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I love that. Hey, friend, how many of us at some point in our journey have thought we had to give up coffee in order to be healthier? I definitely have. But I learned that it wasn't the coffee that was making me feel crappy. It was the 92% of coffee beans that are covered in pesticides, glyphosate, and microscopic mold. I'm glad that didn't last long before I found my holy grail of healthy coffee, King Coffee. This is a combination of organic, mold-free, pesticide-free coffee and reishi mushroom spores, which supports every system in my body circulatory, endocrine, cardiovascular, immune, nervous system, and more. It's even anti-parasitic. Switching to King Coffee has honestly been one of the best decisions I've ever made for my overall health. To learn more about King and level up your coffee experience, go to themedicinemedicin.com forward slash coffee, themedicine.com forward slash coffee. All right, enjoy. Cheers and love. I think we could use a bunch of that and character. I, uh, my next book is probably going to be about character ethos. And I think defining that and we do it with kids where they come up with their own ethos statement. Um, but defining what you believe in and aspiring 
you know, to be that, even if you're not that yet, you can aspire to be, and then you could put place uh, in place a process to get you to where you, you want to be that leader mm-hmm. or that person. Yeah. Walk us through, uh, walk us through that. Cause that's fascinating to me. And I think that we talk about it all the time on the show, which is if you have a big enough dream, you don't have to have a crisis. Mm-hmm. And right. um, maybe well, walk us through what that sort of ethos defining process looks like with kids. Well, uh, with the kids, we do it near the end, right? After we have done all our training and the last course we did was six weeks. So it's a long course, you know, and uh, every day. So, but near the end is one of the things we would do is we, we, after they've already explored a lot of values themselves, discipline, all this stuff. And then we start to de- let them define, not, I'm not, you know, not me as the teacher defining, me as the adult, the person with a white coat on or a plaque on the wall, them as a person and just asking themselves the right questions, you know, and a lot of the kids, it was, you was, I, I would see that sometimes it's very strange instead of looking at people, you know, we ask them who, who, who inspires you, who, who, who's a leader in your life. Sometimes that'll happen, but a lot of times they'll look at the exact opposite and go, well, that person, some of them, their parents, that that's what I don't want to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their traits over here. So we'll draw up like a perimeter in a big circle and what, what skills, what uh, values, what traits they want, put that inside the perimeter, protective perimeter, and then everything else on the outside. And they'll use something to create their own statement. They'll use their own words to come out to who they aspire to be, not who they think they are or who they, you know, because a lot of people think, well, I'm just who I am, right? Right. It's a phrase. I, I'm pretty much just a jerk or whatever. Like, yep. No, not you, but you can aspire to be different. It just takes practice and rehearsing. Mm-hmm. I love it's a cool it. process. And I tell you why, actually, we lead it off with, and I even let it in the book, is one of the strongest things we used to do that kind of brought you back into the now moment in your life. And the SEAL teams, we, we, before we deploy, uh, we would, you know, you got to get your will, all those kind of things. Uh, the, the spouses would come in, the, the SEAL teams would brief them up, hey, by the way, there's a chance your husband will be killed. You know, my wife's heard a bunch of those conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they go over the process of, okay, if he's killed, who do you call? Who takes the kids? If you see two people show up at a door, three people in uniform, he's dead. And it's really kind of a, kind of a rough way to do it. But yeah. so you, you, you know, what do you do? How do you react? Where's your kid go? What's your neighbor do? And then for the guys, you know, you have an opportunity with that will is submit a letter home. I call it. Mm. It's your final letter, not your eulogy, but what do you, if you, if you want to, what do you say to the world? It's mm. a pretty cool drill to do with powerful. yourself. Yeah. It's a very powerful drill. And, and, and I do this, I do it with adults as well, but kids, and they're like, what, you know, who's going to read that letter? And then you, you have two envelopes and one envelope is who you want to read it. And the other one is what the letter is. And then at the end of the whole drill, you read your own letter back out to people. You go, who wasn't in that? Who didn't get to read that? And especially for leaders. If you're working 10, 12 hours a day in an office or in a team, they should probably be on that list. Yeah. So you're not having one life at home and one life at work because you know, you're really one person and you express your values and your love and all those things through your work as well. So yeah, very, it's a good way to open up and go, okay, what, what does my life mean to me? What do I say to people when, I, when I'm not here? I think that's really, really powerful. I think it also would prompt, at least for me as I'm thinking about this, it would prompt a reminder as to... Yeah or an awareness as to why I'm not communicating with these people in an authentic, expressive way now. It's like, wait, I probably shouldn't wait until I'm done. Yeah, that's right. 
to yeah. communicate to this person right. that I love them, that I care for them, that I'm here for them. Like, let's not wait for crisis to to have these sort of deep human connections. Yeah. Yep. It's almost too late, right? I mean, there's a yeah. lady, um, Bonnie Ware is her name. She was, a, I think, not a hospice nurse, but whatever, I forget, the end of life mm. uh, nurse. Um, one of, she wrote a book, she wrote a book and she speaks and stuff. It's uh, The Five Regrets of the Dying. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's very interesting to see, you know, there's just five main regrets and most of them deal with fear, fear of being authentic self, living your own life, fear of expressing to my friends and family how much I care. I mean, it's simple stuff. No one that says, I wish I'd have had a Ferrari or I'd yeah. have had a beach house <laughs> in the Bahamas, you know, yeah. no, they, yeah. no one says that. Yeah. When they approach death and they approach that. So those glimpses and those insights are moments you need to capture and go, okay, let's bring this back to my actual life. Because if you're, if you regret that in your last year of your life, regret those things, that means somehow you're regretting it every day of your life if you're not doing yeah. it. Yeah. And there's yeah. A, something that's missing from you. Yeah. It's so true. And it, it it comes back to relationship, relationship with self. I wish I would have shown more of myself or been more authentic or followed my dreams. That's relationship with yourself, but also relationship with the people you love and um i am I'm, I'm so grateful that you're uh teaching these kids early on that that's a a core value of a fulfilling life is sharing and expressing and not being afraid to do the thing that might be scary or vulnerable um because that, i i you know i'm just thinking of this now but like i would guess that these kids probably have trouble getting vulnerable or allowing themselves to be vulnerable. And that is where intimacy lives is when two people are agreeing to be vulnerable together and sharing that creates the possibility for intimacy. Intimacy is just, is, is such a core tenant of having a fulfilling life and feeling love in your life. So it's like, you know, downstream, like go upstream and, and, and teach them to express and not be afraid in that way. And I, I can see how that would have, you know, downstream ripple effect for, you know, potentially the rest of their life. And mine. <laughs> yeah. I think most of us, right, if you teach anything, you realize, well, I'm realizing I'm teaching myself again. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're reinforcing what I think I know. And I, yeah. da, da, I, you know, I better start believing and living it. Yeah. Um, yeah. How has this process for you as you develop these courses, you're working with these people, how has it translated into your life, you know, with your, with your family dynamic, being a father, have you found yourself like reflecting and, and maybe changing or or at least moving on different positions that or behaviors that you had had uh God, i don't know if i've changed any behaviors I, I, I because most of this stuff i've learned over the years been taught over you know through the seal teams and through reflection and whatnot but i hope it i hope, hope so my son will be the, the judge of that when he grows so he's almost 16 um i think he's probably tired of hearing me yeah <laughs> But he sees, you know, sees what I do. I hope we, we get, my wife and I have a good example for him, what it means to, you know, be a, a good person, you know, and to, to live life. Because, you know, I, I tell him this all the time. I Sometimes I feel like I cheated him mm. because the neighborhood I live in, like literally like 30 yards across the cul-de-sac of me, this, the guy has a Lamborghini, a Rolls Royce and a Bentley. And this is his second or third home, whatever, fourth home, whatever it is. Wow. And I'm, I'm going to tell my son, this is not normal life, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, 
I feel almost like I cheated you out of that privilege of poverty, out of that, that grinding effort to get ahead. But if you understand life and you know, you, you just start a little bit further down the road than I did, and then you can go way further, you know, yeah. hopefully that, that translate to him is, you know, just have ambition, do something you really love to do. Um, and mm. life, that means that doesn't necessarily mean making as much, must get as much money as possible or anything, but it means something fulfilling, something that will sustain happiness, not just pleasures and enjoyment, but fulfillment of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a son of two parents that came from absolute poverty. I mean, the mountains of rural Montana, no electricity, you know, well water, just absolutely brutal. Hey, what's wrong with well water, man? <laughs> no, no, like, like walking down the hill to the, to pull the butt yeah. up the well. Um, no hate on well water. So, and, and they made a you know name for themselves, like business successful career to where myself and my siblings were born into a, a space that was, you know, far outside of the realm of possibility seemingly from, from their life. And, you know, it's funny as I'm so motivated by them and I look at their life, it's not what they've accumulated from a wealth or an asset standpoint, but rather the foundation that they were in the container that they were able to develop for the family unit and for a space and a domain of love that I'm so motivated by. And I look at them and look at the stone that they pushed up the freaking hill. And uh, even though they've got plenty of life left and they'll continue pushing that stone, I'm motivated to take that placement and push it up further um, to the degree that the the cumulative uh, distance that this stone has been pushed up the proverbial life mountain is is. Uh, to be looked at and respected and loved, and that just continues. And I think that's how we make a better world: is is we're able to not place meaning on the physical accumulation of wealth and assets and money, but rather the spiritual or emotional fabric of what it means to be a part of something that's that's of love, and whether you can expand that through your life and your life's purpose. And so I think that like. I mean, even just just knowing you briefly, like the way that you embody this will be seen by a, a child or the, these youth or the people of your community, and it'll go beyond just the the physical assets that have been accumulated in one's life. Yeah, God, I hope so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's hope. Well, I guess your parents are probably proud that you just said that. So <laughs> I hope one day my son will be the kind of the same, say the same thing. My yeah. dad, he did this a million times, and he did this, and he constantly thinks, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, he understands. I think he understands, and I explained to him that that stewardship that I left with the SEAL teams, you know, is still there, man. It, it had that image of in my subconscious and my mind that I feel in my, in the world is who I am. I still it's still there. Yeah, I don't think that ever is, is going to change, and uh, I'm very proud of that. I mean, I think we need more people to be stewards and more people to to help others. People, you know, mm-hmm. first couple decades of your life, it's all selfish, most likely. But then you kind of, as you grow up, and some people don't, but as you grow and expand and evolve, as I said, is, uh, then you should be in that, yeah. get other, others, you know, the others around. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I'm curious, we didn't have this on our list of questions for you, but I'm so curious, this is a very unique uh, line of work and very unique skill set that you have and very unique population group that you're working directly with they also have a very unique perspective on the world. And I'm just curious, like when you, Ed, look out into the world and you see all the division and all the 
political divisiveness, global crises that divide people, and you have to become an expert on on this overnight, and you have to take a stance. And I mean, I, I, I'm sure you understand what's going on out there, and it seems kind of shaky. Like, what is your perspective on the things that are happening out there when you're working so closely with a population group that like doesn't I want to say like doesn't really have the luxury of being a part of that madness. Do you know what I mean? Like I do. Well, like kind of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Yeah. They're in it's hard hard to worry about the enlightenment of the of yourself in the world when you're worrying about where you're gonna eat, right? Where you can sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we have ignored, I know we've had war on poverty and, and I think we have ignored one of the most critical pieces in the kids. I mean, the kids are nothing but you know, victims, if you would, victimized people, they have no say-so. Um, that is what creates adults. You look where these kids go. You know, we're worrying about all these things overseas, and I understand that, um, and uh, worrying about different things, worrying about pronouns, whatever that means. I still haven't gotten my head around that. Um, that's either. And that's not even political. That's just like, I just don't know what people are thinking when they say that. Yeah. So I'm walking on um, eggshells with every breath. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't even know. I don't even know what I don't know. So, but- <laughs> We've ignored, I think we've ignored and not put enough resources into changing the foundation of our country. And these kids, kids are just innocent kids. I, I just look at the Ukraine thing, which is obviously it's a dated thing to say, but we're pouring more money into Ukraine than we pour an entire education K through 12 in a single year. Yep. Mm-hmm. In our country, we know the country's falling short. We know kids are depressed. We know all kinds of things, but we are just not investing in that. I don't think in the right way. And we're no. investing all this other nonsense. And then we've lost all trust. We talked about trust. We've lost all trust. Most people have in our government systems. It's gotten so big and, and greed. Once you have a large amount of people with greed and self-interest thrown into the mix and you mix it up, it's going to come out greedy and shifty and lying and cheating, stealing. And I think a lot of people have lost it. We're mm-hmm. getting ready to start in World War Three, and not to get into the war or anything, but we're getting ready to start World War Three, and people are just ignoring it. Yeah. Look, we've been at war for twenty. We were at war for twenty years, or at least the military was. American population just kind of said, "Hey, it's over there. That doesn't affect us. I don't know any military people. You know, let them do what they do, and we're good." But this, this, we're we're picking a big fight, and we we have a lot of work to do here first. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we we are trying to solve problems from the outside in instead of from the inside out. Well, I mean. We're ugly, we're hideous, we're out of shape, and we're trying to get plastic surgery, put more makeup on, dye our hair, put wigs on instead of eating better, starting to move our bodies, sleeping better, and working on it from the inside out. Yeah. We're, I mean, I just got this image of like someone being injured and we're putting band aids over like shrapnel in the body. And it's like band aids and gangrene. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And it's like keep putting band aids on, it's just going to get better. No, it's not. It's not. (laughs) No, we can't go from the outside in. And it seems, it seems so blatantly obvious to me that if we wanted to improve downstream, we could go upstream to the kids. (laughs) 
to yeah. kids, yeah, which are the, the future and right. invest in them. And, and I don't have the exact, you know, studies and, and research on hand, but we listen to a lot of like Jordan Peterson. He, yeah. he, um, clinical psychologist, one of the greatest minds of our time, in my opinion. And he talks about investing in kids and education and that system all the time. And he, he, he basically is explaining that other countries who invest in their kids first, they yeah. see better outcomes across the board everywhere in places that you might not even expect it. Um, and it just seems so blatantly obvious that we would start with the kids, that we would yeah. do more of what you're doing, that we could somehow, you know, clone Ed Heiner and make a million of you to do right. what you're doing. Well, that's what we're trying to do. No, actually, I, I mean, no, I mean, for me, I can't be in every classroom. So our, our goal as a, as a company, so we're not a nonprofit. We're social entrepreneurs. I think that's extremely important for people to hear because, you know, I don't, I'm not a government fan. I'm not, you know, I know we need government, but government, I've been around government all my life, mostly, and I, it does not solve the problems, right? You can keep throwing money into the fire pit, but, you know, it's not going to help it. And I think this social entrepreneur is a way to solve these problems. Just find a problem, let people smart that are interested and driven to do something, go in and do it and get funded. And that's, we're actually, that's one of our goals to get electronic and to distribute it across the country. Because mm -hmm. uh, I, and write it in such a way that it will not take a Navy SEAL in the classroom to explain it to people, right? It's a, yeah. it's self-explanatory. It's just steps, you know, it's like just A to Z. How do you get there? Well, this is how you do it. This is the yeah. roadmap. Yeah. No, it's important. I, I hope people listening to this realize how important education and taking care of the kids before they become adults, you know, is is really critical. Mm -hmm. What are um, some of the success stories that you've seen uh, from some of these kids going through the program? Well, a lot of the kids we work with um, have went on to go to college, graduate college now. They're at the graduation late. But a lot of them had done, you know, went on and literally been very successful. We've only been doing it since 2019. Okay. But, you know, these kids didn't go back into the system. They didn't become homeless because 25% of the kids in uh, foster academies or foster system go homeless at 18. A lot of them do. But they haven't, that, that's not happening. They're going to college. They're moving on and uh, just moving on with their lives. Do you? Uh, we've got some really good letters written too, I, mm. which we cherish and we keep. These kids have written some very mm. unique letters to us. Wow. Mm. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure there's impact that trickles out that you can never know fully, you know, because some are just not coming back to share how you've impacted their right. life. Um, but I'm curious if, um, shoot, what was I just going to ask? Um, sorry, cut this out, Sage. Area 51. No, yeah. <laughs> actually, yes. Actually well, I was there remember. once, but <laughs> okay. Well, we can come back to Area Fifty One. But I, I'm, I'm curious how you because these kids probably see you Navy SEAL. You're, you're fit. You're in shape. You're successful. They think, hey, maybe I should go join the military or join the Navy. Like, how, do you advise kids coming out of it and seeing maybe the shortcomings of government and or the military? Like, how do you advise kids there? I have had a few kids in my classes that uh, approached me that wanted to be in the military. One of them is an extremely sad story. Um, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was it, when I first did my first course, um, the executive director, Tracy Thompson of the juvenile court system, wonderful dude. God knows his business. He's been doing this for a long time. He knows the streets. I pitched him for like four hours, supposed to be in like 30 minutes. 
four and a half hours later, whatever, he's like, okay, come on in and do this. You know? So he's the guy that got us, a, got us a start. I'm like, hey, I'll do it. This is all free. We'll do it. We'll run a summer camp. I just want to see if what we can do is something good. Well, he, when, we, when I showed up to the academy to take a tour of the school that we we're going to do the summer camp in, my partner and I, the student that uh, introduced himself that was showing us around, he's a senior. And man, I looked at him, and his name's Omar. I won't give his last name, but he's I'm like, man, where are you from? And he goes, I'm from Iraq. I'm like, I know that, but what city are you from? And he was from Fallujah. And he told me what year his family finally made it over to America. And I was in his backyard destroying the place. Wow. And this kid, long story, he had found his way to Michigan with his parents, trauma, his parents, I don't know what they did to him, but he became homeless. And, you know, he, he just lived an awful life. His parents suffered severely from tra trauma. Found his way to this, this, this academy and uh, was now... About, you know, he's, he was in his senior year, spoke perfect English. He learned both languages at the same time. So I, he, had, he had mentioned he wanted to be in the American military. And I had, we have a, like, a, like a division of the SEAL teams that does that, brings in foreign people to help the different things we do. Had him an interview set up and everything. I called back to the school after the program, and he's there like, man, Omar had been locked up. He'd gotten, uh, so he, he, he went into the prison system. Mm -hmm. As a 17 and a half or 18, I think he just turned 18. Uh, so mm -hmm. hard luck story, just, you know, never really got to him in time. Yeah. That's how I, uh, that was the introduction. I'm like, damn. So what we're doing is probably very valuable. Had we yeah. hopefully oh. maybe something we would have said, done with him that would have kept him yeah. the path that he was on. Yeah. You know? What are the freaking chances of that? That just all of those synchronicities and oh my God. What hurt my feelings? I can tell you that. Honest to God, it did. I was like, oh my God, this kid's traumatized because of stuff that we, me, did. Hey, hey, homies. All right. Here's a question we get all the time Is it okay for generally healthy people to take immune Intel AHCC, or is it just for people with serious illness? This is a great question. And most of the world is aware now just how critical a healthy functional immune system is in order to maintain long-term health. But it's still easy to forget about your immune system until it's too late, until there's a breakdown somewhere, until your body is dealing with something quite serious. So what happens when generally healthy people take AHCC? Well, it's sort of like fixing the roof when the sun is shining. And now your house is much less likely to flood because of a leak. How does it do this? AHCC works like a boss to quickly enhance the immune system, cell function, and communication. For example, the NK, natural killer cells, these are white blood cells that specialize in attacking tumor cells and cells infected with viruses. AHCC has proven to increase your NK cells by up to 800% in a matter of weeks. And T cells, these immune soldiers are important because they help direct your body's immune response. Certain types of T cells can actually seek out and kill foreign invaders. And AHCC helps promote optimal T cell activity. I know that I want this intelligence in my body every single day. So Chase and I both take at least two capsules of Immune Intel AHCC every single day without fail. 
If you'd like to start blessing your body with this daily intelligence, go to themedicine.com forward slash products, or just check the show notes below. Cheers, boo. I would imagine for many who are, you know, out of the military and are dealing with maybe these instances that bring up the past. Um, yeah. And even in your experience, like you were alluding to earlier, having night terrors or dreams. Yeah. Um, what for you, having been through this, would you say to those who are dealing with something similar? Yeah. Um, what has been healing for you? What have been the steps that you've taken to navigate through this very challenging, challenging and very unique experience that really is probably unique yeah. to those like you? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I don't, everybody has their own reasons why they, things come back to them, but something that, you know, dramatic in your life has to kind of imprint in, in your mind, in your body, your, your cells, everything. But me, now we're going to get into it. I, I, you know, in 2021, I actually went to, uh, Mexico on an experimental kind of psychedelic, uh, retreat, which I thought. At first, until I signed up for it, I thought it was stupid. To be honest with you, I was like, man, it's bullshit. But a friend of mine, uh, a pretty famous guy, his name's Johnny Walker, wrote a best-selling book. He was one of our interpreters. He was there for about six years in Iraq with us. I mean, the guy's done like thousands of missions. I mean, mm. absolutely brought him back to San Diego. He got citizenship. Uh, but Johnny was, uh, I guess, really messed up. And I saw him at a party, and I was, he wasn't drinking. And he had his wife with him. He's different. I'm like, man. So long story short, he, he says, I'll call you tomorrow. So he calls me and he calls me in a one-way conversation. He's funny. He's a funny guy, heavy accent. And he says, he told me about this psychedelic retreat run by the Mission Within, which is sponsored by Vets, the Solution, which is a, a nonprofit, a, a Navy SEAL market, Marcus Capone and his wife started. And he told me what it did. And I'm like, man, get out of here. But I trust him. I said, okay, okay. And, uh, while he was talking to me, I got online, signed up, put my resume, you know, my my bio in there, who I was. Boom! Immediately they came back, and uh, I went to Mexico. And matter of fact, on September 11th, the 20th year anniversary of 9/11, wow. I was uh, two hours into, three hours into a, a, a heavy dose of ibogaine. <laughs> so, if anybody knows what ibogaine is, it's the strongest psychedelic on earth. It's a grandfather. It's not like ayahuasca or mushrooms or something like that. It's it goes from eight to thirty six hours. It's a long process. You're hooked up to an EKG, wow. O2 saturation, uh, IV poured in. You jumped into the deep end. Yeah. Well, I didn't mess around. No, I've been. Why not? You know, it, yeah. it, the moderation's for cowards. That's a seal expression, <laughs> right? That's why we drink too much. We fight too. We do anything too much. If one's good, ten's better, right? Yeah. So yeah. why waste around in the shallow end? <laughs> Just go ahead and get on the deep end. Uh, no need to microdose. Just head to the grandfather of like, all psychedelics. And then after that, we have some Friday night. I came out of it Saturday, uh, and then on a, the Sunday we do five meo DMT, which is a the venom of a toad, they crystallize it, you smoke it, and that, well, there's no way to explain that on this. If anybody that's out there has ever done the toad, they would know that there is no there's words. No but there are no words. When you launch on this thing, and that, to me, they, they kind of underplayed that, to be honest. They kind of sucked me in. I was like, okay, you kind of got me here, because they took me two weeks to shake that off. Wow. Like, to kind of come back to an emotional stability level. I mean, I was like, oh my God. I mean, once you go and this thing takes you into, they call it the God molecule, right? As you guys know, and people listening, because 
once it hits you, you know you're in a, a space of God, not a person, but of this eternity, energy, this loving, kindness, joyful, just blissfulness. And then as you do the heavy dose, you go actually to your death, which, you know, weirds a little bit of people out. It kind of weirded me out for a few minutes when I got, or a few hours when I came back. I'm like, oh my God, I was dead. That's what it's like. And that was kind of a wonderful experience though. Um, but that, that has probably been the single most thing that uh, has done the most for me. Mm -hmm. It's taken, let's see, that's a year and a half, half ago almost. Uh, I have yet to have a dream, mm. which is usually every um, few months, I just have these cycles of dreams and I, you know, I just couldn't control it. I'd get up, it would just be in my brain. My wife knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. It would last for a couple of days. Uh, just, yeah, when I was obsessed with it, but yet I haven't had it yet. Wow. Did you go into your psychedelic journeys with any sort of intention? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, that was, there's like a three week counseling session before you go three or four weeks and, you know, being obsessive compulsive on that thing. I was like, okay, what do you want me to do? So I talked to my counselor and I, I did everything they said. I said intentions. I meditated, prayed on it for like over and over and over and over and over and over. So once my idol game kicked in, unlike some guys that admitted they didn't really do the pre-work the intention setting, mine didn't mess around. You know, I had some strange things happen in the be very beginning of this, this uh, journey, but went right into inside my own brain. And anybody's never done it, you can actually navigate inside your mind, these memories and things happen. And I went right to a moment that had been plaguing me mm. and uh, I dealt with it. Mm. I saw this exact same scene that I'd, that I'd, that I'd done a while back. It was right in front of me. And then, you know, I guess if I had to summarize that weekend, it would be, I was gutted by the devil or a demon and, uh, and sit, spent a day with God. Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, it was very odd. Mm. It, it, yeah. I was. And, and see. Isn't the polarity, right? Isn't that life? You're, you're one, oh. you're one day in hell only to experience the context with which you can experience the bliss on the other side. Yeah. Do you, is there any way that you can, obviously the, the Ibogaine was helpful in that it allowed you to go pretty deep in, back into a memory that obviously was plaguing you that needed yeah. to be looked at, that couldn't be swept under the rug or, you know, left yeah. in the closet anymore, um, you know, really shining a light on it. Um, do you think that was the primary mechanism of your healing just looking at it and and oh i know it was it, acknowledging yeah. it or was there some other lesson that the medicine gave you well to, i guess i would explain it like this is that what happened to me when i saw this scenario go develop in my mind that i'd done you know um i i saw it i could smell it i could feel it i could hear it but it was without the emotion to it i wasn't trauma it wasn't like this mm -hmm. horrific scene and I, you know i just I mean, it is a horrific scene, but I didn't feel it at the time, and I just accepted it. Mm. I just they were they were you know the counseling was right on about hey man just lean into this and don't fight it just it, accept it surrender and go with it which I did. Now some of the other seals were down there with me did and they fought it and they fought it for like thirty six hours. Wow. <laughs> they were the Igo game was on them for a long time, but yeah, I could tell that moment on, and then when I did the five meo DMT on Sunday that that was it. That was not a part of my life anymore. I don't know how to explain how I just knew that was not part of my life. I just didn't feel the same to it anymore. I didn't think about it. I didn't get emotional about it. And then, uh, you know, turn my head from it in my own mind, my mind's eye. I didn't avoid it. Just 
it just it is what it is it, you know and i still fall back on i never intentionally hurt someone unless i had to and that was thank god i did that you know mm-hmm. yeah no i think that is that that is a great thing by the way people listening i think that's the new way for post-traumatic stress with a lot of veterans and rape victims traumatized people that is the that is probably going to be the newest newest thing that comes about that everyone is going to be looking into you mean ibogaine specifically well i think just hallucinogenics you know I know it sounds strange because it's you know, pesky people like, oh, they, I'm hippies, man, they're just tripping. No, 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 it's not that. It's oh. not something recreational. I probably will never do it again. <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah. that's it's definitely thing, worthwhile. Uh, about these experiences, it's not like, wow, I loved that hit. Let me go take it again next no, weekend. No, it's not addictive. <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> no. very, very satiating, fulfilling uh, experience. It's, you're, I mean, you're it's like, out. it's like running a marathon. You know, yeah, it's <laughs> like you can get a lot of value out of it and it's it's quite the experience but you're not signing up the next weekend to experience right. the exact same right. thing yeah um and i'm curious um do you think that you could have gotten to that level of acceptance without these journeys i don't know you know maybe time but uh, but i've been to that hell it been 9 years since i've been out and and, and the years since some of that what took place i i just don't, i don't know i don't think so maybe I, I think that doing that weekend with the five MEO and the Ibogaine was just a way of but releasing that energy, if you will, from mm-hmm. every part of me. Um, you know, I'd read, you know, I'd, I'd read a lot on going into it and I'd read a lot of spiritual stuff on how, how to heal yourself and the body keeps score, right? There's mm-hmm. that newest book and talks about the trauma, which I was like, that's bullshit until, <laughs> until I did it. And then that after, you know, the five MEO, man, I felt, I would say probably just, uh, 20 40 pounds lighter when i got up like oh, oh my god mm. wow hours i just sat there like in bliss seeing the world in a whole different like birth way like it's new to you again you see mm-hmm. things just it, it's incredible man i i i'm very grateful that uh that i did that man yeah. i'm so glad there are these groups that are doing this in a in a really really uh intentional healing way i'd be curious um your thoughts on god or divinity prior to this and then what and how that has changed after the psychedelic experience um i'll so yeah, say i was you know from virginia blue ridge mountain so it was like i with my grand other baptists always have a sense of god jesus christ in my you know, mind maybe it's like alcoholism this is always in there you know it's but i think it's bigger than that to me it was very big you know um i've always loved buddhist mindset the buddhist philosophies of life it's not really religion more of a philosophy uh, i but i think when you experience this and it rips away that ego and that's what these things do they really get rid of your damn ego where you you see things and without that belief system that you have just constantly reminding yourself who you are um it showed you that that everything's everything's connected everything it's not scary. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just the end of you as the ego as is your thing, and that scares people thinking about it. it. You know, maybe all of us, but just that connectedness of it all, just the understanding and feeling that overwhelming sense of joy, love, if you will, and connectedness. And some people, most people, say, "Well, you you know, you you can have a debate and go, well, you were high on some hallucinogenic.' Well, okay, well." You know, it, you're high, like you're talking about run, running marathons. You're high on endorphins. Only people reason you do it. It's an addiction, right? I mean, it, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, all those neurotransmitters. You're high on something yeah. that makes you happy, right? So if you're just high, but for me, I was like, well, 
that was a real experience and it's stayed with me. That's the critical part. I think it will stay with me for a long time. I hope so. Yeah. 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 yeah our, our audience is, is no, I would say most of the people in the audience are, are listening along and, and, um, are familiar with these types of conversations and okay. I'm, yeah. sure they're, I'm sure they're, they're tracking with you just fine. Um, how has, how have these experiences changed your relationship with your wife or partner or, or just friendships in general? Has it, has it touched those at all? It has. Well, my wife does, has noticed a difference. Obviously she knew right when I got back and, uh, yeah, my patterns, my life, drinking and nightmares, all that stuff, that's over. I mean, that's, that's a big, for her, that's a, that's a relief. You know, filling the void now, that's a different story, right? How, you know, because some sense, some of these, some of that was part of the identity, I think. And then once it's over, it's very important to kind of connect with people, get into another space in your life that, it, you know, fills that gap, whatever that gap is, that you can continue this kind of, you know, journey, I guess you would call it. Um, that's, that's a hard part. I, that's, that's, but that's the important part is always looking. Always looking to see what's uh, what's what's going to fulfill me in life and what's the best thing to use my, the rest of the time I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, which is not much. I'm in the fourth quarter. You guys aren't. I call it fourth quarter living. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey. uh, you I look, might even be in overtime. Like I don't you're, know. You're, you're you look very like, vital. Yes, you look like <laughs> you're, you're going to be around for a long time. Um, coming back to to you a little bit, I, I have so many questions, and I know we're we're coming up on um, time. I know, but. Um, I want to give you the opportunity. I know we've shared a few thus far in the conversation, but um, we really like providing our listeners with uh, unpopular opinions because that's something that is a ninja life skill these days is being able to hear yeah. potentially an unpopular opinion that maybe you don't agree with, but you're able to just listen along and have an open mind and hear the other person's perspective. Take as long as you want and go anywhere you want with this. But is there an un unpopular opinion that you maintain that you'd like to share? Mm, God. So half the world will get rid of me. All the no, I, I mean, <laughs> I think at the moment, I mean, I, I'm very adamant against the us involving ourselves in this Ukraine war. Mm. And, I've, I, and I, I, you know, the argument always goes back, well, there's people dying and suffering. Stuff. That's what war is. It's not about the people in leadership position dying of suffering. It's about the people that shouldn't be getting harmed. Um, I think America's done, we've done a lot to get into this war. We, you know, if you look back, you know, the Ukrainian history was part of Russia. If you look at the Eastern part of Ukrainians, I know some Ukrainians, they identify as being Russian. They don't identify as being Ukrainian. Uh, Putin, as bad as he is, he's been complaining for years, decades, actually, 20 some years, all the NATO countries on his border. And we have failed to actually try to remedy this, remedy this thing. We are jumping on the bandwagon, beating the war drums. You can, any news outlet. Now, when you get politicians on both sides of the aisle agreeing, probably yeah. something scary here. Yeah. Because we, we do not know what we're doing. We, we failed to do any diplomacy. I mean, Adam Schiff in 2020 said at the House floor, he said, when he was speaking about impeaching, you know, then President Donald Trump, he's talking about we're fighting Russia. We, we would have sworn Ukraine to fight Russia over there so we don't fight over here. I'm like, when did we start fighting Russia? I think we need, you know, I think we're at sleep at the wheel here. And this can really it, it, um, light off into something extremely dangerous for the world. And we, we're, we're so accustomed to everything being over there. But Russia's not a normal country. They have more weapons than we do, right? We do not know what 
how they're going to escalate it. And then, you know, just all the principles of warfare, you know, the seat is the number one. So I have a hard time believing what comes out on the information that the, that the White House has given and that people overseas have given, because I've been there and seen, watched in wars, actively fighting the war and watched what our news people report and mm. want, how it's perpetuated. Yeah. I mean, especially in Iraq when we, the, uh, the, uh, the insurgency was kicking up and things start, things started to happen. I would see reporters basically, sta it's literally staging uh, things to report on to escalate it. When we were on the ground going, no, that's just not true. I'm here with you. Because I know that I used to go out with the recorders and kind of hide in plain sight to find uh, bad guys. But I was watching what they do. So I distrust it. Yeah. I think it, we're, we need to just really look at diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Keep, you know, Russia, there's no reason we should be fr uh, enemies with them. There's the, yeah, they have different belief systems. They're very conservative in their belief system. I get it. Um, but I just think we need to pull them closer. I just... That's to that. So I know it's not a very popular thing to say, but currently I think that's one of the biggest crises we yeah. have. Right? I appreciate that, you sharing. Very lethal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's it's a situation where if the worst happens, everyone loses. Every there is no winner. There yeah. is nothing <laughs> left. One and, yeah, they call it well because they're talking like tactical nukes. They use that word tactical nukes as if it's like some surgical damn thing that's going to happen. Right. That means the entire city goes away and God only knows what the fallout of that and what's the retaliation and where does it stop? It's like, dude, there is no sense. Um, no. Maybe if they all smoked the damn toad, they would stop. The <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I know. It's, we all, it's funny because all this, you know, it was five of us at that Mexico thing and pretty much everybody was unraveled when we finished that weekend. We're like, holy yeah. shit. Um, yeah, we, we joked about that. So, man, you let the world leaders... Go to a retreat and do a little bit of this action and then have a summit and be like, okay, we'll figure this out, man. Yeah. There's no need in doing what we're doing over here. Uh, right. Yeah. That's, that's the more beautiful world that I want to live in. And I think, you know, coming full circle on this entire conversation and, and I just so appreciate you highlighting these things that are important because they're, we're, if we don't actually talk to individuals like you who have the experience and the knowledge and and the uh, bravery to be able to just communicate counter narrative ideas we're going to be funneled into the kind of mainstream yeah. whether it be news yeah. or just social you know it ends up being more of like a social movement even though these things are of utmost severity pertaining to war and and human lives and so having these tough conversations and and putting forth these these concepts is so vitally important and it comes back to what we've been talking about this through this entire conversation, which is start inside, start making a change in yourself and in the people that you can can touch and impact in your life. And if we can heal humans, we can heal society yep. inside before we look at trying to solve our problem ex problems externally. Sure. We will make progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there um, kind of on that last note of you know? We talk about mainstream things quite a bit on here and that and, you know, in, encouraging our listeners to become their own best advocates and not just believe something just because it's on a TV or a headline or whatever. Is there are there any sort of sources, news sources, websites that you personally um, advocate for or trust or, you know, use for your own knowledge that maybe are independent, like that we could point people to that that aren't. CNN or Fox or whatever. No, I, I watch. If I'm going to watch something or read something, I read. Try to read from each perspective. Right. We know if you get Fox, you know where it's coming from. You know where CNN's coming from. You know, even though 
every each one of them thinks they're the right way. Well, I just kind of look at all of them. I read I read the New York Times quite often, uh, just, but I think just look at patterns. Uh, <laughs> I mean, especially with this Ukrainian thing. I mean, Merrick's been meddling around in people's business for a long time. And I don't know the last time we were in the right, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we invaded Iraq. You know, we, we look at that. You know, we are, yeah, you're, you're Russia's invading Ukraine. But we did the same thing in Iraq. And we justified it saying, well, weapons of mass destruction. Well, I was there. There were no weapons mm-hmm. of mass destruction. And so, <laughs> so I think... Yeah, I, I think just read everything, and and but it's it's really hard to get off our beliefs. Once you believe, once people believe something, it's extremely hard to change their mind, even in the face of actual facts. Yeah. But I think it's just always, exp- you know, you have a duty as a citizen, as a person, to you know look around a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And not be so damn opinionated about everything right. you think you know, because most of the things we just don't know. Yep. Right. I think it's a it's a skill these days to be able to tell yourself and others, like you know what. I don't have a strong opinion on that. I'm still learning before you, yeah, you know, sure. get up in arms, you know, whether it's proverbially or literally, yeah. um, you know, taking a specific stance on something before you talk to people who have been there, who have experienced it, who know firsthand um, or just getting, you know, a wide variety of facts that you can kind of like look for holes, look for, you know, how can I use my deductive reasoning here? It, it it can be more than one day before you really take a firm stance on something. Yeah, right. And it, the hardest thing is going against your friends. You, you, you're hurt, you know, because there's like a herd mentality. We all have it. And it's like, well, my 99% of my friends believe this. And if I, I if I even counter that, you get yeah. your ass handed to you. Yep. And it's, it's, it's a psychological thing. People would rather go along with something they don't feel at all is true than to fight their friends over it and oh, lose yeah. friendship. Yeah, it's it's back to the identity conversation. I'm putting my identity in what other people think of me instead of how I'm showing yeah. up as my authentic self. And yeah, perfectly put. I think a a great reminder for for everybody, especially in the current landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been such a blessing. Ed. This is this is awesome. I think a good a good time to come to a close. Um, where can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing? Can people get involved? They can. Well, look at. Uh, edheiner.com you can go in there that's that's the one one site i have with the uh, leadership company the other one is uh, myphd.me and you can look at my story while we're doing this you look at some of the programs just contact me yeah uh, we'll see where it goes great and you i'm always interested in people if they, if they know anything about education or have any ideas or people that are in it and want to connect some dots please do uh, yeah mm-hmm. and are you looking for uh, you know more of people like you that want to do this? Like, are you in that stage yet? Or is that further down the line? Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, yes, right during the pandemic stuff, we were already expanding. We had a lot of stuff going on. Actually, my lead instructor, um, retired Navy SEAL also, he just found out he has stage four cancer. So he's Mm. fighting that. So, but yeah, we are looking for people. People want to participate. And then hopefully we go um, national with this electronic curriculum. And that's the goal. So yeah, but anybody yeah. has any ideas or people they know, just yeah, yeah, and bring it on, man. Yeah, uh, we'll talk to you. And, yeah. and remind us of your books and, and where people can find them because I know some we're going to want to check this out. The first is uh, first fast fearless, first fast fearless, all literary, and then the second was guts greatness under tremendous stress. I think I got, I got a, yeah, I got a couple of them in the back there on Love the bookshelf it. on the top, right beside Love Buddha. <laughs> yeah. 
So look them up. I think uh, they'll, I think hopefully it resonates with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Last right. question that we ask every guest on the medicine medicine podcast is all about developing and facilitating, leaning into the medicines, the real medicines of our life um, that help us develop our relationships to self, to God, to all the things. What for you currently feels like medicine in your life? Family. Yeah. Doing the stuff, I, doing the things I do and writing, doing what I'm doing. I think writing has helped me a tremendous amount to, not that I'm a great writer, about, you know, but just to express yourself and like, I'd say Spelunk in that cave, you know, it's like going to cave dwelling and you find out things you didn't really know you knew. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that to me, that's very exciting. And to put that out to the world, it'll always be out there. So yeah, I think those, and that, I mean, helping the kids, obviously I get them, it helps me a lot. Yeah. 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 I'm building that resume for heaven. So yeah. to speak. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's just at the beginning stages, by the way, it's a blank slate. No, I'm kidding. No, it's developing. Yeah. Yeah. Work in progress. Well, we appreciate you so much, um, your work in the world and just taking the time to come share with us and all of our listeners. I know things that you talked about today, I'm sure will resonate with people. And I'm absolutely sending this episode when it comes out to my little brother, shout out Josiah. He right. spent four years in the army and was deployed over in Syria and, um, you know, experienced some really tough, tough things over there. Yeah. And so anytime I get to, you know, learn from someone like you yeah. who's gone through the work and done the healing, you know, and uh, I think that that's just invaluable. So. Josiah, you're going to be getting this one. <laughs> Ed, thank cool. you so much. Yes. So inspired by you and just grateful that you are in and on the earth in 2023. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. You are one of a kind, and I'm so glad to be connected to you, and we will continue to be an extension of you on the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, you guys. Thanks for hanging with us today. Go check out Ed's website, edheiner.com. Just check the show notes, subscribe, send this episode to someone you love if it touched your life in any way. We'll talk to you next time. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.